Angela Simmons. Angela Simmons is in pain and her employees are unreliable. Angela Simmons. Angela Simmons. Angela Simmons. Angela Simmons. Angela Simmons is in pain and her employees are unreliable. Angela Simmons in neuropathy and the unreliable employee. If you eat food in Clarence, Texas, chances are you've run into Angela Simmons. Angela Simmons is a lifelong resident of Clarence. She was born here in 1926. She's 47 now, and by this point in her life, there's little in town she hasn't seen or done. Angela was born a gifted spitter. All of us are born with something. All of us are born with a gift, and Angela was born a gifted spitter. She showed talent early, making a mark for stamina-based spitting. At age two in 1928, she could spit far and she could spit full. A remarkable prodigy, Angela could spit a perfectly dime-shaped spit a good five feet. Even hit a target if you asked, and that's usually four or six-year-old spitting capacity. But Angela showed that right out of the gate, age one or two. Angela was born a gifted spitter. A bunch of neighbors started to take note and suggested to Angela's parents, this kid of yours might go somewhere with that. Damn good spitter. Angela was born a gifted spitter. Back in the 1920s and 30s, this meant something as competitions for holding your breath, spitting, hopping on one foot, or other tests of bodily novelty were in vogue. This was during the great era of the National Stamina Exhibitions, also referred to as the NSEs. The NSE was a big deal. The NSE was developed by the concessions industry in 1928 to bring people out of their homes. Radio was ruining the hot dog business and government also worried that it would ruin community with everyone staying inside and not mingling. Turn off the radio and see something was the shouting cell of the NSC. It was a big deal. All events in the stamina exhibitions were deemed impossible to describe on the air. A radio impossible feature was what the NSE billed itself as. Radio impossibility. You won't be able to hear what you see here. Said the NSE sign. You won't be able to hear what you see here. Said the NSE sign. Radio impossibility. You simply had to see it to see it, they'd say. And that meant a lot of tourism, too. And cities everywhere bid very competitively to get the little boys and the little girls spitting or hopping under their big city tents. In 1931, 
Clarence was selected as host city for the touring four and five-year-old NSE Spitters. While many ambitious young salivators would need to travel to compete, it was home field advantage for the Clarence kids, and Angela, peaking in spitting ability at age five, could barely believe her luck. The other five-year-olds that Angela went to school with secretly envied and hated her simultaneously for her success and notable talent. While Clarence would have the four and five-year-old spitters, the two-year-old stamina exhibitions were held in Dallas. They were always held in Dallas whenever the stamina exhibitions came to Texas. This is a money issue. Dallas was very interested in the youngest age girls and boys, and they would always outbid every city for the youngest age girls and boys to spit on stage. Dallas outbid every city. You just knew not to touch the two-year-olds if Dallas had its eyes on him first. But Clarence held on to ages four and five, and they looked forward to a good stamina exhibition that summer. The crowd at the underage stamina exhibitions, regardless of age two, three, four, five, or six, were remarkably well attended. For some inexplicable reason, wrote the local news, the younger you spit, the bigger the audience. And boy, was that the case. Show me a man who doesn't like a good young spitting boy or girl, and I'll show you somebody who doesn't exist, said a columnist. The rules of stamina spitting are simple. To win, you need to spit farther than anyone, and you have to have it land on the stage in a shape no smaller than a dime and no longer than a foot. A penny is ideal. And then, for stamina purposes, you need to spit again and again at the same distance until other people collapse, can no longer spit, or bow out. The spit can't just glide out of your mouth in a trail, resembling a comet. It has to be ejected out of your mouth with such force as to appear on the ground as a round object of saliva. You have to spit like a discus. It has to spit like a discus in the air and land relatively intact. And this sort of solid spit ejection was Angela's specialty. The solid spit flick, she called it. And even the six-year-olds were intimidated. If you keep up with spitistics, incidentally, you'll see some serious spit records that very year, all going to Angela. And you'll also notice that 1931 is the only year in the spitting record books for a girl so talented as young Angela Simmons. There's a reason. There is a reason. A series of storms of dirt in the air for many years. A series of disasters, weather-based and agriculturally caused from drought, heat, and poor agricultural practices, collectively called, called the Dusty Dust Bowl, the Dusty Dust Bowl, the Dust 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 Bowl, this real horror film of history where blinding brown dirt attacked much of the southern plains all the way from Nebraska down to the Texas Panhandle. Clarence was many, many hundreds of miles away 
from the Texas Panhandle or any real Dust Bowl activity. And most residents felt safe from what they were hearing about dirt in the air up in the northwest of the state. But a southern-faced weather front scooped down and took much of the dust and took it to town one night. And this was a night before the six-year-old spitting test. Angela fell asleep with an open window and she woke up for competition the next day to a room full of grit and sand and other dirt on every hole in her face and every pore in her body. She would never spit again. She choked for a week and was afflicted then from life with a chronic dry mouth. She would never compete again. Such as it was, local fame then did not materialize for Angela, despite her plans. By age eight, she was a dried up, former stamina winning spitter. She was only known to the other eight-year-old kids. None of the parents, or even the older kids, knew anything about Angela, nor did they care. She felt like a spitting failure. The kids in her class never forgot, however. They would follow her in identical age for the rest of her life. And they aimed on purpose to bend her one good moment, age five, to a life of mocked cruel teasing over the same achievement. When she was 10 years old, the eight-year-olds were now 10 years old too. She couldn't run away from them. No matter how old she got, they kept right up. And they laughed at her endlessly, screaming, spit face, spit face, who's a spit face? It's Angela, to Angela on the playground. Soon, World War II broke out. America began its draft in 1940. And a few of these kids' parents enlisted or answered the call for selective service. And these kids' parents were killed overseas. Seeing children crying in the streets or being taken away to orphanages or shipped off to some relative that they didn't know satisfied Angela, who considered it karma for making her feel so taunted and miserable. The death of these parents suddenly made Angela deeply patriotic for the war effort, hoping a few other parents might get knocked off to make everything even more even. On a family trip to Port Aransas, Angela met a painter on a Navy yard. And so at age nine, Simmons got into modeling, posing as Miss Age Nine, a universally popular war calendar. It would be the only prepubescent Elvgren painting ever published. Angela was 19. Her work as Miss Age Nine had dried up and she soon realized many of the five-year-olds that had taunted her at age five were 19-year-olds now just like her. Enough of their parents were dead and enough time had gone by for all wounds to heal over the spit taunts and she eventually settled down two years later with 21-year-old one of them herself at age 21. And the two of them just sort of stopped looking around at anything else at that point. And they had a family and a house. Since 1966, Angela Simmons has been the operating manager of the Clarence Coffee Cup, a bacon and eggs dealership. 
That's what it calls itself. It's not a diner. It's a bacon and eggs dealership. At the Clarence Coffee Cup, you can name your price on every menu item. Depending on your skill, you might get a damn good deal at the Clarence Coffee Cup. It pairs the fun of buying a car with every breakfast and lunch served. That's what you hear on the radio when they're telling you about visiting the Clarence Coffee Cup. You see, being the world's only bacon and eggs dealership was quite a gimmick, and it was a gimmick that was well-loved across Texas. Making the Clarence Coffee Cup have the distinction of being one of the few businesses to survive the Clarence evacuations of the mid-60s. Texas Diner Review from 1967 says, the Clarence Coffee Cup, three and a half stars. The place has a packed jukebox and a great shake, and all the girls on the floor are the cutest you'll ever see in an apron. Running a bacon and eggs dealership is fun for the customers, but the accounting is brutal for the employees. And if you haggle your ticket down to next to nothing, the waitress makes worse tips. Diners started to notice the weakest-willed waitresses and would pack into their section to pound her down to rubble with the lowest bids on her eggs and bacon. As for waitresses, if you didn't meet your minimum price on a menu item, you had to eat the loss. This is what managers would tell you. Eggs were 20 cents, no lower, listed for 25. Those were the rules of the Clarence Coffee Cup. If you wanted to be a girl on the floor and take all the wealth and fame, you had to take the risk too. Poor Angela started her career at the Clarence Coffee Cup as a waitress. And on the floor, she got so low-balled one night by a packed table full of bar drinkers. They were all coming home from a night. They were rowdy as hell. And they bid her down, mercilessly down, to three cents an egg laying it on her so thick with pressure, loudness, hot breath, and laughter. She couldn't stay in the conversation, and she had to give up and give in on their demands. That is how you name your price at the Clarence Coffee Cup. It's said that it's just so lucky that the kitchen ran out of food that night, or the entire coffee cup might have gone bankrupt. Subsequently, Angela was deemed unfit to work on the floor and was instead promoted to upper management. And she has guided the ship of the Clarence Coffee Cup with incredible grace ever since. That was 1966, and it's now been seven years into the best job of her life, late October 1973. In some ways, it's like Angela is Miss Age Nine all over again. Both waitresses and kitchen staff love working with Angela. They love working for Angela. She's a very popular boss. Though you might technically call her a middle manager, she has her own boss, which makes it very tough for her. For example, the actual floor of the Clarence Coffee Cup is extremely stressful, and all they do is hire girls. Young, pretty girls. All of them looking for jobs at probably the toughest place in town. Angela feels that she wasn't prepared properly for such an experience. She certainly didn't know much about oral pressure and how much it ground her down. And look what happened to her. 
she'll say. So every time she hires a new girl, especially for floor work, Angela tells them about how to properly take on some eggs or bacon at the coffee cup. You can tease them with the fruit, she says. She says this to everyone who starts there. And often, a new girl might reply, how is that? What's that? You can tease them with the fruit. You can tease them with the fruit. This would be during a training exercise, and it's an exercise that Angela designed and facilitates. She designed this presentation, and it runs all new waitresses through accepting or declining bids for food. When going through this orientation, there are two men in suits, hopefully two men that you do not recognize, sitting in a bench. They're the janitor and the cook, but they are dressed up to be customers in customer uniforms. They aren't wearing janitor or cook uniforms. They are wearing customer uniforms. During the orientation, one of them looks to a girl and says, I'd like the shredded potatoes, crisp, and for a nickel. It's at this point, Angela whispers into the new hire's ear, what's the price on shredded potatoes fried? The girl who is up to speed with the numbers knows that that price is seven cents and that they list for a dime. I can't do lower than eight cents is a good counter for a question for nickel crisps. Baby, you're gonna give me some of those hot taters of yours for a nickel, says the cook. Then he begins saying over and over, for a nickel. For a nickel, for a nickel, for a nickel. Nickel. <laughs> what, what is happening, says the young hire, usually frightened and crying. This is only a drill, says Angela, as the man continues. For a nickel, for a nickel, for a nickel. The new hire is nearly about to faint. The bluster of nickel taters, nickel for a nickel, is so loud in the restaurant at this moment, during this training session. Right then, at this point, Angela says, stop. And the nickel chant stops, and she points to the new hire, and she says, now, this is the point. This is what you can do. At this point, you can tease them with the fruit. Angela says, stop to the whole scene. And she goes, here, this is what you do. At this point, you tease them with the fruit. The new hire seems to know what to do. How about some tasty grapes? She tries to say. Perfectly stated, this throws the customer off almost immediately. They stammer for a moment, thinking about those tasty eight cent grapes. This makes an opening and all new waitresses in training are taught to then say, okay, so that's an order of nine cent taters and some tasty eight cent grapes. The customer will be so stunned at that moment, they will not know what hit them and often will just nod, agreeing to the order. A perfectly done tutorial session should conclude with the cook stammering, how about some good tasty grapes? How about some good tasty grapes? How about some good tasty grapes? In a small stupor. And once this reaction from the cook is predictable, it always ends on grapes. At that point, a girl is then ready for the floor. It takes Angela months to prepare a girl for food wagering. 
And so once someone is properly trained, there are certain permissions granted to the girl who had made it through the gate. She has a talent now. She can defend the food. The menu will not be lost to her through stress or through oral pressure. These specialty girls are coveted at the coffee cup and they overstaff to keep control of the crowd when it might stampede in. This would be lunch or when a bar might let out. And during the day in particular with breakfast and lunch, the day shift usually has one extra girl working the floor than it needs. This is convenient because at least once a week, one of the girls cannot make it in. Angela knows this is usually a bullshit excuse or a reason why that somebody can't come into work that day. And by 1973, at age 42, like she told you, she's seen and done it all. She knows when someone's lying. She knows when one of the girls is dumping a line on her, but she always permits them to call in sick or be unable to work on any day. And the girls know this and they exploit it. Everyone gets along and we all get along is a mantra of Angela's. And so when somebody calls in to be sick, the mantra of everyone gets along and we all get along is the operating thought for the next day of the week when the girl arrives completely healed and symptom-free from yesterday's strep throat or bout with polio or giddy as a candy bar the day after she's had her mom die in a car crash, according to what she said when she called. Angela lets all these lies slide. Everyone gets along and we all get along, has worked for the Clarence Coffee Cup. They're making a profit, and Angela's boss is very pleased with her work. But all of this maneuvering and compliance is stressful. It's frustrating as hell to never know if an employee is going to be in that day or not. And you can't perpetually overstaff because you will lose the restaurant money and wages, and the tips will be less for each waitress as well leading to less retention of employees. So you just have to live with the occasional no-show, which is completely random. Maybe one every two months or three in one week. Those kinds of results. Subsequently, Angela Simmons has been developing what is commonly called neuropathy or nerve pain. Her suppression of stress has silently gone into developed gestures and other quiet movements. Each of these movements are unnatural clenched and repetitive. While dealing with the stress of whether or not an employee might show up or might not on a given day, Angela deals with the slow building of a fist where she twists her wrist around. Each of these gestures are unnatural and repetitive, like the slow building of a fist where you twist your wrist around, holding the twisted wrist fist as tight as possible and as long as possible until your wrist hurts. This is what Angela does. Then she twists it around the other way, using her forearm this time to take on the twisted wrist. She spins her fist around the wrist until the forearm tightens, and she holds it then for as long as possible. She lets go of her fist and gasps. This is how she copes, and she does this twisted wrist fist a lot. There's a series of nerves that begin in your neck and travel around your arm. 
there are three main nerves of the arm, the radial, the ulnar, and the median. The radial actually wraps around your humerus bone as it travels down your hands. The ulnar and the median just sit like a small swing set hanging around your elbow. All nerves in the arms end in the hands. And all these nerves are potential victims of Angela Simmons' twisting wrist. A nerve is like a rubber wire going through your body. You can floss it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth by extending your tendons, your tendons, tendons. And each time you're gliding the nerve back and forth, back and forth. You can also compress or block the nerve simply by sitting weird or putting your arms up on a chair the wrong way for 30 or 40 years. This makes the nerve hurt. And by this point in Angela's life, she's been sitting in the manager's office at the Clarence Coffee Cup since 1967. She is understaffed today, and it is 8.18 a.m. Some good business out there on the floor. Some grits are moving, so are some hash browns. If she can get through to 9 a.m., the lunch crew will arrive and she'll be able to tell the morning crew to leave, and she'll be staffed at least through 2 p.m. So typically from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. on a busy morning like this, she's twisting her wrist like crazy. 20 minutes to go, and her arm is tingling. She moves to doing a twisted wrist fist to her other arm to do the twisting, and she can feel the other arm is also tingling. Glowing in heat with electrical pinching out zaps, her arm feels like an electrical pinch, pinching out zaps like a small power cable. It's the worst moment of every day for her, waiting for these damn calls from a waitress who might be calling in sick and then having to struggle to either keep somebody on the floor or find a replacement for that day. There's no real consequences for putting Angela out like this, and the girls tend to do it quite a lot. A phone rings, and Angela quickly answers in a spasm. Clarence Coffee Cup, home of the Name Your Price Biscuits. How can we help you today? It's not one of the girls. It's just a question about hours. Who? Happy to answer your question. You have a good day now. And Angela hangs up. And for a moment, the heat of the arm slows and then moves upward again. Tingling pain, like a small twinkling spatter of pinpricks on the edge of her fingers. It would almost be pretty in a painful way if this was all there was with Angela Simmons' compressed or impacted nerve tissue. She knows, unfortunately, that around noon she won't be able to hold the phone. Her elbow will be so weak and the pain will be randomly shooting around her neck and her wrist. This is how she takes her lunch every day dealing with this pain. It's such a chronic problem. Angela feels this attack of pain every day and at this exact same hour. She knows just through basic clock math that it's directly related to the two hours of wrist twisting fists she does every day from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. But that is a requirement of the job to field the calls for the girls who might not show up. And she has to go up and she has to be there and go through it every day or she'll be fired. This is the rule for managing waitresses at the Clarence Coffee Cup, making sure the girls can keep working there no matter what they do, no matter how often they are late or skip shifts. 
because, Angela, you're just a manager here at the Clarence Coffee Cup. Those girls are on the menu. You understand me? This is Angela's boss, the owner of the coffee cup. Those girls, listen to me, Angela. Those girls are what the customers see. Those girls make the customers hungry. Okay, you can order the food. Let's say those girls are selling pudding. Those girls are gonna make the customers hungry for some pudding, Angela. Don't get above yourself. You can order the pudding and you can even sell the pudding, Angela. Hell, I even allow you to price the pudding if you want. And you can train the girls to push that pudding during an order if it's up to you. If you want a summer of pudding, Angela, you can do that. But those girls are the prize of the place. They are the prize, Angela. And you are not to fire them for anything. Do you understand me? This is a strict, angry lashing that Angela received for firing a girl who chronically called in sick one month, showing up three out of every 18 days. That wasn't even enough. She was cute and the boss liked her. So Angela knows not to speak up and she takes her lunch in her car, often screaming in pain from the daily arm spasms that do occur like clockwork at 12 p.m. noon. But before she can get to her car, she has to get through this morning and she's currently holding that fist. She's holding that fist into such, such a tight twist. She's letting go and making her fist huge, extending out in every direction and then slowly back in. Slowly back in into a twisting wrist fist. A perfect twisted wrist fist as a finished fist made into a fist right as the twisting wrist twists. And now, it seems the pain is on the top of her neck. It's 8.52, and the phone rings. Hi, Angela. It's Marie. Marie. Angela starts to twist her fist. What is it? Is everything okay? Yeah, I just got to take the day off, Angela. I don't know how to explain it. I think I must have gotten something from Susan, maybe yesterday. Yes, Angela says, opening up her hand. Yes, we were so glad to see Susan is doing better today. And I'm sorry to hear that you're not feeling well. Let me see, you're doing at 11 a.m.? <coughs> Marie coughs. Yeah, so sorry to be doing this. No problem, my sweetie. Everyone gets along and we all get along is our motto. You know that. You get better. We can cover your shift on the floor. Thanks, Angela. <laughs> Marie says, coughing as she gets off the phone. No problem. No problem. 